I have seen companies that we've acquired that have prided themselves on having a low cost broker or doing it themselves. And you can get into a lot of trouble that way. In many cases, it is a cost savings to pay a little more to have the right guidance. I'm Adam Connors from NetworkWise and your host of Who's Who in HR. Ask any successful CEO about the most important aspect of their company and they'll inevitably answer their people. And who is it that's responsible for their people? It's human resources. In fact, HR is the backbone of any elite organization. They attract, develop, and engage top talent, progress culture, secure and manage important benefit programs, make sure you're appropriately paid, protect the best interest of each employee and the company, and so much more that quite frankly often gets taken for granted. On Who's Who in HR, I'll have in-depth discussions with well-known human resource leaders who offer insights into who they are, how they got there, and the areas they support. During our conversation, these leaders will reveal beneficial industry advice and innovative trends in the HR space that's contributing to keeping the world's most successful companies at the top of their game. My guest on this episode is Jane Binzer, a seasoned HR professional with Cerberus Capital Management. There are a lot of nuances that go into the HR function when a private equity firm takes over a company or manages a company. Jane makes sure nothing flies under the radar. So let's dive right into the world of private equity from an HR perspective. Jane Binzer, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I was really eager to have you on the show. There's so much to talk about. And then just during our kind of like a pre-call conversation got me that much more eager And I'm excited to really kind of talk about your background as well as let the audience get to know you more on the personal side, but then dig into some of the experience that you have and the insights that you're able to share. So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. My pleasure to be here. For those that don't know who you are and what you do, do you mind giving a quick synopsis of your background and uh, what you're doing these days? What I'm doing these days, as I've done for the past 15 years, is I lead the HR practice at Cerberus Capital in their operating group, the Cerberus Operations and Advisory Company, and work on all aspects of our transactions from due diligence all the way to divestiture from the human capital side. Prior to that, I did some HR consulting for a few years, and I spent my formative years growing up at Bloomingdale's. Excellent. And all of this pre-deal work, your background was in human resources, correct? My background was in human resources, a field that I entered accidentally, but grew to love and become expert in. (laughs) That's a beautiful thing. And it's so interesting. And like one of the things that we were talking about before hopping on this was just the importance of having a resident expert from this facet of the business get under the hood during the due diligence of a deal? Mm -hmm. We feel it's a differentiator that you can engage a consultant to do the HR work on a deal, and most firms do. In fact, often on the other side, they'll say, wow, we don't have someone like you. But 
the difference is, first of all, I have to own the result. I have to live with that company in the portfolio. So if I get the diligence wrong, I have to own the result. But also having someone whose sole focus is HR from the M&A vantage point and what the levers are that will make a deal successful is very important. Mm, on so many levels. Do you mind, most people don't really fully understand what private equity is, how it works, because you said like owning the portfolio. Do you mind just giving high level of what that is before I start getting a little more granular in the questions? So when a private equity firm buys a company or makes a significant investment in a company, it stays in what we call our portfolio of companies. And most firms, not all, but most firms, certainly ours, uh, stay very involved in the operations of the company throughout the hold period. So usually the investment professionals, and in our case, operating professionals as well, will have seats on the board. We'll do monthly operating reviews. We'll do quarterly deeper dive operating reviews. And in our case, we engage with the companies on a number of other levels. I do an annual benefits survey. I'm on the ESG committee, Environmental, Social, and Governance Committee, and there's an annual ESG survey. We work with the companies on talent reviews. We work with them on their insurance renewals and environmental matters. And if they have technology issues, we have a very large technology team that can help them. So the companies that are in our portfolio get a lot of attention, but it's not like being part of a multinational conglomerate. We don't come in with our big briefcases and say, we're from corporate, we're here to help, and you're all going to do everything exactly the same way because our companies are each unique and we allow them to run autonomously. We believe in putting the right people in the businesses and letting them run the business. But as you can tell from my earlier comments, we stay very involved in the day-to-day as well as the long-term strategy. Yeah. And the organization just carries such a great reputation you know, not just for the, the company itself, but this team that you've built is a big differentiator. And I know that there are a lot of other private equity organizations that have tried to replicate the operations team that in, in what you guys do. And just to give a little background to those that are listening, years ago, I owned an executive search firm that did a lot of work in this space. So I know firsthand, you guys are the benchmark and I know what other mm-hmm. organizations were trying to do. So kudos to you on that. Yeah, we believe it's our special sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it is. So I'd love to ask you a couple of what I call rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little better. And then from there, we'll transition to, like I said, getting under the hood. You ready? Okay, fire away. Yep. Yeah. Early bird or night owl? Uh, a reluctant early bird. I would love to be a night owl, but the early bird gets the worm. And I've discovered that you can't always get done what you need to get done if you say, I'll do it later. So got to be an early bird. Mm. So did this happen early in life, That no pun intended, or is this something you feel <laughs> yeah. Out, right? yeah, as soon as adulthood hit, <clears throat> it occurred to me that the way to be a productive adult was to get up early and get stuff done. Yeah. And what do you do to stay sharp? Yeah, I guess physically and mentally. And you know, they're probably one and the same. I work out every day. I believe that if you don't run your rest and one way to stay sharp physically certainly is to work out every day. But I also believe that it's important to mental health as well. I do some of my best thinking when I'm running or lifting weights or something like that. But it's also just an opportunity to sort of clear out the cobwebs. 
That's great. I love that quote. If you don't run, you rust. Where did you get that from? Is that a Jainism? It's it's become a Jainism, but it's a line in the Tom Petty song. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) I really like that. Any habits that you have, good, bad, or indifferent? We all have some good habits and some bad (laughs) habits. My good work habit is that I believe very firmly in getting back to everybody in the course of one day. So it's become kind of a trademark for me to always respond to to emails or phone calls by the end of the day, even if it's late at the end of that individual's day, just to know that I didn't forget them. It's really interesting. So I have another show. It's called Conversations with Connors. And what I'm doing in that show is interviewing just like an eclectic group of people, not just like this show is all about the human resource profession. That one's about every, it could be anything. I mean, I've had gentlemen who's running for president. I've had actors, athletes, entertain. I mean, just all different kinds of people. And one of the questions that has kind of become a standard question and something that shows up all the time is around getting back to people. And the top people, it's funny, as busy as they might be, that's something that, you know, that rule of thumb, that 12 to maybe 48 hours time frame, how important that is to get back to somebody. So mm-hmm. kudos to you for that. And it's really interesting because you hear a lot of people that are in middle management, oh, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. And mm-hmm. the excuses when we're all busy, it's a matter of prioritizing. So I'm really happy that you said that. So thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so when all this stuff with COVID and things settle down a little bit, what's the first vacation that you're going to take? You know, of all the questions you gave me to prepare for in advance and think about, that's the toughest. It is such a big world out there. And as much as I have traveled both professionally and personally, there are so many places that I still want to go that it's hard to pick one. The exotic vacations that are still on my list, like places like India and China that I have not had a chance to explore, or at the point when all of this opens up and I just want going to want to go live on a beach in the Virgin Islands. (laughs) Mm, It doesn't sound like you're going to go wrong with either one. I think not, but I am definitely ready mentally to get on a plane. I mean, you've been living on one for years with what you do, correct? Yeah. Has it been nice to have this break? It has, but now I'm getting a little itchy. I look at my suitcase, which has for the past number of decades always been partially packed, ready to go at a moment's notice. And I noticed it was getting a little dusty and decided it's, it's really time to get back on the road as soon as we all can. Uh, it's around the corner. So in the spirit of getting back on the road and working like and doing what you do, what was it about, I guess, what qualified you to be in the role that you're in now? I mean, truthfully, you're a true generalist, right? Like you really need I, to understand. I am one of the last of the true generalists, I would say, because yeah. people have started to specialize in the H, even within HR at a much younger age. And there are not as many dinosaurs like me who, <laughs> who come up through all the disciplines. It's funny when you say what qualified me to do this. When I took this job, I wasn't sure I was qualified to do this. I had done some M&A work, but never on the scale that I do now. And I was actually brought in, I was doing consulting, and I was brought in by a friend and actually former direct report of mine. She had joined the firm. And within a couple months of joining the firm, reached out to me and said, oh my God, they need this so badly. I can't keep up. Can you come help? 
and I was finishing up an assignment and I said, I can start in two weeks. By the time I joined, she had decided to go into one of our companies as the CHRO. And she literally, as I walked in the first day, handed me a stack of folders and said, here, take my job. And I was only going to do it for a few months. And that was 15 years ago. And here you are. (laughs) And here I am. (laughs) Okay. So you're doing a lot of acquisitions. You've been involved in some major deals and we don't need to name any, Mm -hmm. but when doing an acquisition, there are so many things to think about. And you know, we're obviously just going to focus from an HR perspective because that's what you do. What are the things that most, I guess, deal guys, quote unquote, are overlooking? What are the things that aren't being, that most people aren't thinking about? Well, so of course they all think about the big dollar liabilities. Is there an underfunded pension? Are there unions that are going to preclude them from executing their investment thesis and so on? But there are a variety of other things that could make a deal go sideways. It could be legal compliance, either with FLSA, meaning wage hour laws, mm-hmm. which can have severe penalties. And if they've been violated long enough and the profitability of the company depends on that level of violation, let's say, turning the company more profitable by compliance could be very difficult. Other laws, I-9 compliance, for example, has been a factor in one deal that I worked on. It happened to be in the Southwest. It was a hospitality company and it was an asset deal. And when I said, we're going to need to redo all of the I-9s because this will be a new entity and so forth, we discovered that the first week we could barely run the company because people did not show up who, who knew that they were not going to be able to successfully demonstrate their ability to work in the United States. So there are things like that people don't think about, but then there's areas that are sort of a given like benefits and the, the investment professionals will always want to know what's the benefits load, what's the fringe rate without really looking at the underlying fitness for duty of the employee benefits. Are they sufficient to attract and retain the workforce you need, but are they also being run cost effectively and in a manner that will yield no surprises in year two or three of the whole period? Wow. It's a lot of things to think about. What about culture? What about labor issues? Culture, Culture is also big, but unlike those other things, I would argue can be a little more easily fixed and has a less obvious dollar component. Culture obviously comes most into play when you're doing a bolt-on acquisition or when you're buying two companies to put them together at the outset. And we've encountered that a number of times where we've intentionally bought kind of, I'll call it sleepy old co and bolted on simultaneously cool new co and put them together to make future co And there have been a lot of clashes of culture. And there have been a few times when we've underestimated the impact of that. So you're absolutely right that culture is a significant factor, just harder to quantify. Yeah. What can you tell me about drug spend, the whole pharmacy area? That goes back to my earlier point on benefits and not just what's today's fringe rate, but how well-designed are the employee benefits. When I first started doing this, the rule of thumb for being self-insured was a thousand lives. And that number has dropped significantly over time as 
the risk profile and analysis of medical claims has changed. But the, the part that can bite you is the pharmacy spend. If a company doesn't, for example, carve out their Rx, their drugs spend, the medical carrier is taking all of the sort of smoke and mirrors aspect of how that is run. And look, the drug industry is a very interesting one because it's very expensive to bring a drug to market. And pricing is not as transparent as for other sorts of commodities. And a new drug, a specialty drug that promises a lot can be enormously expensive. And there are a lot of rebates provided by the pharma companies to get people to use those drugs. And those rebates can go into the the wrong pockets if a company isn't careful. And there are a lot of ways for companies to design their plans to avoid even getting into that situation by carving out their pharmacy spend separate from their medical plan, making its own coexisting plan, putting in provisions to monitor the use and availability of specialty medications. Some specialty medications aren't as special as they sound because they're really the result of combining two existing drugs and enabling the the pharma company to charge double, triple, quadruple the price. So having an intermediary in there who can monitor all of that and make sure that's not occurring, that consumers are being guided away from those drugs is very important. So how do you mitigate the risk around this? You can't be expected to know all of this, right? Like, or or do you? So no, and and most companies, especially the small to mid-sized companies who can't afford to have a high-level benefits expert in their companies have to rely on brokers, uh, broker consultants. And that's a, a case where you do kind of get what you pay for. I have seen companies that we've acquired that have prided themselves on having a low-cost broker or doing it themselves. And you can get into a lot of trouble that way. In many cases, it is a cost savings to pay a little more to have the right guidance both from the broker consultant aspect, but also in many cases, if the company is large enough to have an advocacy program that will make sure that the plan design is being adhered to, that there's a a review of medications before they're paid for and and before the the consumer gets into a treatment program. Wow. Well, you you know what they say, there's a, a high cost to a low price. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And, and that is very true in the, in the, health world. And look, I think it's not going to get better in the near term. I think a lot of different players in the healthcare industry have been particularly hurt by COVID. Some have had a moment of actually benefiting. A lot of the insurance plans, a lot of the companies incurred fewer claims. And so on the face of it, one would think, wow, this is great. We're going to see no increase next year. But I'm expecting that perhaps the carriers, the UHCs and anthems and etnas of the world, are going to be trying to extract their pound of flesh Mm. unilaterally from all companies, not just those that had a large number of cases of COVID-19. And it will take, again, clever consulting to kind of look very critically at the not just trailing 12-month or trailing six-month history as companies go into their renewal, but their their multi-year history, their 
demographics will, I think, increasingly play a part as we've learned that there are certain people with comorbidity that are more likely to experience COVID-19 and other things that are costly to take care of. So I think the, the demographics of a population are going to start to impact health premiums and costs for companies as well. Wow. So all the more reason you need some kind of uh, you know higher caliber consultant that really specializes in this to help mm-hmm. give you the mm-hmm. right type of advice because there's just, just so many things to think about just in this one little right. area. So Exactly. And making sure you have the wellness programs, the diabetes management, uh, pregnancy management, things like that as well. Wow. So... And then I guess that's a nice benefit to any organization that you acquire that, hey, here's kind of like uh, that, that you're bringing all these assets, knowledge base, resources mm-hmm. to the table. So again, giving them another better opportunities to succeed when coming under, exactly. your, and coming yep. under your umbrella. Okay. And then what's the biggest overall challenge that you're facing in what you do? It's an ever-changing landscape, and the the challenges of a few years ago are obviously Mm. different than the challenges of today. If you had asked me six months ago, I would have said, oh, the biggest challenge is is getting the right talent, is making sure that all of our companies are well-staffed with the right people. And I think that's not going to be the biggest challenge two months from now. I think as there have been winners and losers in all of this. I think we're going to be able to find ourselves with access to better talent, but I think we're going to have now the new challenges of the workplace of tomorrow. And mm. I've been exploring with our operating companies, with, our, with the companies in our portfolio, what that looks like. And obviously it's different company by company. The manufacturing companies have a very different workplace of tomorrow than an office company. But that is the top of mind HR issue right now is how do we create safe workplaces, both from a physical health safety and a mental health safety? Because I think mental health is going to become an increasingly bigger challenge. Yes. So how do we tackle all of that and still get to the things that were important six months ago, like engagement and talent development and and all of the things that help drive growth. Because in the end, still, good leadership drives employee engagement, which drives customer satisfaction and business results. I mean, it all comes down to that. But getting the answers to those different steps of the equation are starting to look a little different. Yeah, it's so funny you say that. So I've got someone coming on the show next week and what they just had a company-wide uh, meeting, what they agreed to do, they're selling, they own real estate in Manhattan and they're selling their real estate. They're sure they're going to take a hit on that. They're going to do pure virtual, but what they're going to do is they're going to start doing, they're still, this is where they're vacillating. Is it monthly or is it quarterly where they're going to do retreats? And they're oh, be, interesting. Yeah, so that's they're going to be their business plan. They're going to be a couple will be like three day weekend retreats, and they're going to rotate around the country and also do global because they are a global organization too. So they'll make some of them fun. They'll make some of them local. They're going to mix it up. They're going to hire a lot of different kinds of different types of consultants to bring in. Whether it's some for entertainment, some for team bonding, some for training and leadership development, just like what you talked about. Yeah, so it was a big change. But what they've realized is that they're actually getting more production from people in the current work environment, Mm -hmm. working from home. But what they fear is their culture is getting, they're losing their culture 
uh, and they're afraid of burnout. So that's why they're doing some of these. That's the idea. Those are big challenges. And many of our companies have been pulsing their employees with surveys throughout the, the work from home period. And as you say, many employees enjoy working from home. It's a bigger challenge for families with young children, with the children home. But if we get to a point where children are back at school, but parents now have the flexibility to drop them off and pick them up and work from home and interrupt their day with home activities, I think we'll find employee satisfaction goes up, but it will be much harder to create a cohesive employee culture. Yeah, no question about that. Can you share an interesting HR story that maybe a deal that didn't go through as a result of some of the due diligence that your team did? Or maybe a deal totally did go through as a result of your due diligence? I've got some of each, um, as you can imagine. (laughs) As you can imagine. So there um, have been a few deals, to my earlier point about legal compliance, where we have gone in and done a review, for example, of compliance with guidelines for independent contractors and discovered that a company relied very heavily on independent contractors. That was kind of the business model. But when we started to apply the test for what constitutes an independent contractor, in no way were those people truly independent. It looked like a duck, it walked like a duck, and boy, did it quack like a duck. (laughs) And when we said, all right, fine, we'll just convert them all to employees, when you added on that that well, the expenses, the medical, the, the fringe rate, the cost of providing benefits, the payroll tax, social security, so on and so forth. All of a sudden, it didn't add up. The company couldn't make money. So we walked away from that deal. So that was a case where the HR diligence definitely made the difference. Um, I've had others uh, a little less dramatic, but where the underfunded pension liabilities were so outsized and we couldn't figure out a way to ring fence that, bifurcate the plans, get creative enough to make it worth doing. But then I've had other deals where that became the interesting heroic move. So we did one deal. It was a carve out from a a large, very old corporate parent And a number of the employees, when I did the the analysis of the census file, it became apparent that a number of the employees, a very significant number of the employees, met the criteria for retirement. And we knew that in order to be profitable, this company needed to do a significant headcount reduction. But obviously, you hate to be the bad guy Uh, and come in and take out a lot of heads. That's the opposite of how (laughs) you want to start your relationship with a new entity. So instead, we constructed an early retirement offer that we funded the parent, the seller, to make to employees. We said, all right, we'll pay for it, and you make this offer, and that way people will opt out on your seemingly on your dime and stay in your retirement plan because we're going to not take the retirement plan. We're going to leave it behind so people get to retire as full qualified retirees and we get to reduce headcount. And that was one of those exercises where to some degree I was smart and to some degree I was lucky because I sort of made a number of educated assumptions on roughly how many people would take the offer based on the years of service and and a number of other factors and came very close in the end. That was the only (laughs) problem with it was 
we couldn't predict which departments would be hit hardest. And it was a little of cutting off my own nose to spite the face of the larger deal because a disproportionately large number of people in HR met that retirement criteria, (laughs) which tells you how the parent felt about HR, but that's a different story. Um, And so I was left with having to quickly build an entirely new HR department, which in the end was the right thing, but it was very a little bit of a tense moment there at closing. But that was a case where we did all the work. We thoughtfully went through how do we get the result we need in a way that will not damage our relationship with the employees who remain going forward, that will not put us in that position of, oh, you've just cut a thousand people, when's the next shoe dropping? Mm. Um, So HR diligence can be a big part of a deal for the right kind of deal. Yeah, sounds like it. (laughs) It definitely sounds like it. How important is your ability to develop good relationships tied to the success that you've shared? Oh my gosh, enormously important. Over the years, I've built relationships with obviously a number of broker consultants, but also with relationship managers at payroll companies, search firms, independent contractors who can do things. So when we find ourselves in a situation where we need to pivot quickly, we've got the relationships to do it. We closed on a deal and in the Late, it was through one of our lending deals, and we determined that there was a an issue with their existing payroll provider, and the contract we felt was not fit for the direction the company was going in, the pricing and so forth, and we were unable to negotiate quickly a new deal. So I had relationships that I was able to call upon to do a whole new payroll implementation in very short order. And without those kinds of relationships, you get in the queue. You're part of the large masses. And quite frankly, that wasn't such a huge company that they would have pushed aside other customers for that particular client on their own. But thinking of the broader service relationship, we were able to get it done. That's huge. I think I kind of know the answer to this next question I'm about to ask you, given what you just said, but I'm still going to ask it. (laughs) And I know we're running a little tight on time, but here, ready? I want to know what this quote means to you. The soft skills are the hard skills. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I could unpack that one on many different levels. (laughs) I mean, first of all, what we're seeing now in terms of leadership and how the leadership qualities of our CEOs of of companies across the country, it's not just within our portfolio, are truly being tested. And so those soft skills, those leadership skills, suddenly are the hardest ones to develop and to bring to the fore in a time like this, but they are so much more important right now than whether or not you can extend your working capital a little further or move your payables, clean your balance sheet, having the right leadership qualities, the the right soft skills, if you will, to manage a company through really troubled times is far more valuable, I think, certainly at the helm of a company than those sort of block and tackle technical skills. I couldn't agree with you more. And I actually was on the line earlier today with a CHRO of a, of a consulting firm. They've got 4,000 people. They are in the midst. They're having major, 
They're growing like crazy. They have, they offer a phenomenal service. They're not the only ones that do this service, but their leaders are openly just bad. They are just technical, very good at what they do, but they're losing their talent. Their talent doesn't care for them. The talent doesn't feel that the leadership cares for them. They're not developing them. Their communication skills are so bad. And so this guy was telling me that he just hired a company that, first of all, would only work... The punchline is $250,000 to work with 15 executives one day each. That's it. Wow. Yep. That's and and he said oh, that wow. yeah. So that's the level of demand that some of these like high performance coaches are in it right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. It's everything right now, and you're watching it unfold. There's a little bit of Me Tooism, and I don't mean Me Too with the capital letters. I mean being a follower. As you see one great leader of a company step up and take a stand, then others follow. And if that's what it takes, fine. But on an individual connecting with your workforce basis, leadership has never been more important. Oh, it's nuts. It is crazy. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Bill Campbell. He wrote The Seven Cornerstones mm, of Excellence. Mm-hmm. He's, he was... Uh, I could co- not have pulled that name out of a hat, but I have heard of the part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, so he, he coaches like Eric Schmidt. He coached maybe Zuckerberg, and I'm forgetting who else. But yeah, again, people like him, they're worth their weight in gold. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. Okay. My last question before I okay. let you go, because I could keep you on this for hours. So <laughs> I... Uh, uh, <laughs> If you were interviewing you, what would you be asking? If I were interviewing me, I might have gone a little bit down the path of being a woman in what was, when I joined, a very male-dominated profession. When I joined, there were only three professional women in the firm. Fortunately, the class picture looks very different today than it did 15 years ago. And I'm pleased to see that in our younger group, There are quite a number of women, but when I joined, it was me and two lawyers who were the only female professionals, and that made it interesting. I don't think that for me it was a gating item in any way, but I think that it became in the other PE firms, in financial services in general, financial services and technology both still, I think, lagging behind in that gender diversity. I think it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think if I were asking the questions, I'd want to know what, if anything, did I do to make the world, the company, the firm a, a better place for women? And I will say that I have certainly helped to contribute to mentoring and developing some of the young women and and taking it as something that I think is important as we move forward to have diversity of thought, not just faces, but diversity will, I think, help us make better choices in our investments and execute better going forward. I'm glad I thought to ask you that. <laughs> no, that, no, that's that's awesome, and and I actually should have got, kind of gone down that path. So I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention and and sharing that insights. Because yeah, I mean, I know again just my familiarity with the organization and just some of the people that are kind of in your or under your umbrella are uh, you know, extremely impressive. And like you said, they're bringing a different perspective. Is, is there any right. any downside to this? 
there's no downside to greater diversity of thought in in business for sure. And listen, today we now have we have a, a diversity and inclusion committee. Uh, Cerberus, like many firms, still being a leader, has come a very long way and is now fairly progressive in that arena uh, versus 15 years ago. Awesome. That's just another thing for you to be proud of. Jane, you are a, a pioneer. You are an expert in your craft. You're a lot of fun to speak with. And I really just, again, appreciate you carving out the time to spend with me and to edify the audience. My pleasure. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Many thanks for listening to Who's Who in HR. If you're looking to connect with more top-level HR professionals, be sure to log on to NetworkWise.com to find out how you could be part of an HR mastermind group. Also, subscribe to our newsletter to stay up to date on everything happening with NetworkWise. In the interim, make it a great day and remember to always NetworkWise.